but in your English classroom, you can sit on your butt in a chair with your shoulders back and your feet pushed forward. And you can wait for someone to pour stuff into your head and then give it back to one person, your teacher, on request. But if you're in the journalism classroom, you are going to be leaning forward. You're going to be on the balls of your feet. The initiative rests with you. The ball is in your hands to move it. And you're going to have to make that shift and it won't happen immediately. Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. Teaching students to become effective communicators is at the heart of JLI's work. Austin is a rock star in journalism education. She taught journalism and English for many years at the Harker School in San Jose and at Palo Alto High School, which is where we first met. She advised the Viking Sports Magazine and website, which earned a Columbia Scholastic Press gold crown several times, actually. Yes. And I think it's noted as being one of the first high school sports publications, which we'll talk about. Numerous other awards, National Scholastic Press Association, Journalism Education Association. Uh, she also co-advised In Focus, a daily broadcast news program at Palo Alto High. Um, and then prior to California, she taught English and journalism in Minnesota. She received JEA's Rising Star Award in 2006, which was the inaugural year of that award, and was named the 2011 California Journalism Education Coalition Journalism Teacher of the Year. That's a mouthful. Um, and was the Dow Jones News Fund 2012 National High School Journalism Teacher of the Year, which is a, a real um, significant um, accomplishment. She holds a gold key from the Columbia Scholastic Press Association and uh, received the Pioneer Award. So um, I, I, you know, that's a lot. It's a mouthful, but it's you're deserving of, of all those accolades, um, Ellen. And welcome. So glad to have you on on our program. Um, I thought we would start by just um, maybe hearing a little bit about how you were bitten by the journalism <laughs> bug. Uh, what, you know, tell us kind of your, your journey into becoming a, a journalism educator. Well, it's the accidental path of a, of a career teacher, right? Um, this wasn't what I, this was not my life journey. This was not my plan. Um, but going back to when I was a kid, I uh, got into photography when I was in middle school and high school, and that led me to uh, pursue getting on the high school journalism publications. So I joined my high school paper and yearbook staff as a freshman and did that all through high school. I wouldn't say that we were, you know, uh, thank you very much, by the way, it's great to be here. I'm loving this. And <laughs> it's a little humbling to hear the, the list of awards read out loud. And, uh, you know, I always wanna say, uh, those are great. I am glad that our publications did so well and that my kids were so passionate and so, skilled and so committed to what they did um, in all of the scholastic journals and publications I've been fortunate enough to advise. I would also say this though, as I'm talking about my journey, you know, my high school paper and my high school yearbook were, we, I, don't, I don't think we ever got a regional award, not a state award and certainly not a national award. 
And I still was up all night long trying to get the picture done <laughs> for the paper. And I was at the basketball games and, you know, so uh, the love of doing it is, is I really think somewhat separate from any hardware you get. And I did not come from legendary journalism uh, legacy programs. I came from what I, I had a great advisor, but we just did it because we loved it. So I was on this in high school. It's been interesting to me to see the um, paths that so many kids in my high school journalism program have crafted. Uh, many of them have gone on to either journalism or advocacy work or politics. Um, and of course, quite a few into teaching as well. But I find that interesting that there seems to be such a push to find your voice and do do some good work in the world with with where we came from in high school. Yeah, I started. I I came to teaching as a second career. I was doing other things. I didn't major in journalism, and I kind of uh, through a back door got into uh, English education. The school that I was in in Minnesota, which was in a farm town in southern Minnesota, a little tiny town of about three thousand people. Um, when I got there, uh, we had a yearbook. I didn't have anything to do with that, but there was no school paper. And that reminded me of, of my growing up times and how important the paper was to me. We tried really hard. We weren't that great, but it really mattered. So I asked some kids if they would join in and we would just try to do a paper. Um, this was in the moment, the, the transition out of film, the transition out of, of pen and paper graphic design. Uh, where we were beginning to move into that digital age right at the turn of the 2000s. Uh, so a lot of uh, manage, change management and, and becoming comfortable with what you know today is not the thing you're going to need to know tomorrow. Um, that led to a path uh, uh, moving on in Minnesota. And then the big move gave up my Toro snowblower to move to California, <laughs> to go to Pali. The irony, of course, was that when I was in high school, there, were, there was no Title IX. I went to high school pre-Title IX. Girls sports was really um, not celebrated at nearly the level it always should have been. Um, and watching the women's NCAA tournament, I'm reminded of how important women's sports and, are in every way. So when I got to uh, Pally and they said, you're gonna do a sports magazine, I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> I never played on a team, you know, I, I, I really didn't know anything about that. Um, and you learn fast. So I, what I found was that um, uh, I loved it. Um, I, my staff was pretty much hundred percent athletes themselves, um, in every sport and they were, there, there is no one who cares more about the story on the field than a fellow athlete. And we, uh, did some stats over half of the kids in any high school are, are playing a sport, at least one sport. And the other half know someone who's playing a sport. So there was an audience to hear the story and, and our, our mantra there was, um, you can tell, you can talk about any issue that's resonant to teens and in life through the lens of sports. And that's mm -hmm. what we did. Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you, uh, because um, uh, there's so much to talk about here with you, but, uh, but for, we have many um, educators and parents who, um, you know, listen to this program, uh, but may not necessarily uh, understand why we're so passionate about this journalistic approach to, to, to learning. And, you know, one of the quotes that I reminded you of from you when we talked many, many years ago, is you said, journalism is English language arts being put to work, you know. Uh, and, and so, I, I, you know, if you could sort of describe the shift that you've seen in students uh, when they are 
exposed to journalism, the journalistic lens, uh, compared to the other areas of academics in terms of them having choice and agency and all those things that we know um, can benefit kids. It's interesting, the first word that I was going to focus on when you were, were, were framing the question was the word agency. Um, you know, I'm not going to lie, I love, I am passionate about writing and words in every single way. I'm passionate about the visuals too, but I love reading and I love teaching about writing and I've taught every writing class there is. When I went to Harker, I was fortunate enough to have a principal who said, would you like to teach journalism full time? And this was after a 20, you know, almost a 20 year career at that point of having taught all English all the time. And I was like, yeah, let me in coach, let me do it. Because um, in the pursuit of journalism, you're right, it is, uh, it is English language arts being put to work. The whole reason that we train kids of, of, of how to analyze a text and how to be a clear writer and how to be an analytical thinker isn't so that everybody goes on to be a PhD English lit professor in their future career. We do it with the eye to that being a core skill that will serve a person no matter what they choose to do in their later life, that they will be a more seasoned, effective communicator, that they will have the confidence to kind of share some cultural language together that comes through the, the study of, of literature. And somewhere along the way, I feel that we've gotten a disconnect that it's, we're studying, we're studying this kind of in a, in a, not always linking it up to the other subject matter in a school and not always linking it up in the kids' minds to you're not reading a book, you're reading a culture, you're reading, you're reading a, a way of you to meet words and to respond to them. You're meeting, you're meeting skill sets to make you be able to get what you want in the world to happen with more uh, facility. So that's how I feel when we walk into the journalism classroom. You can, I can take a kid from anywhere in my journalism classroom. They can be that English kid. One of my Viking reporters is uh, was she she did some running and played a little sports, but her main thing was playing professional level Bach on uh, the piano, clavichord, and now uh, other things. And she's actually, she's lived a life in music, but she was on the Viking staff just crushing it. In fact, she got the first prize uh, from the Giants baseball organization for best sports writing. Now, that should tell you that, a, that, a, that a, a, a polymath who cares so much about music and other things, who can also bring that mind to, to, journal, to, to sports journalism, that's what we wanna see. So I can have in 15 kids in a room, three kids who are passionate about. So at Harker, I wasn't doing sports. I was doing the full spectrum at ad, advising of newspaper, online, yearbook, and then this huge um, kind of a humans of your school uh, feature profile project. And in my classroom, I would have the kid who really wanted to just read about the NASA, NASA work and what's happening with the, the telescopes. I would have three kids who wanted to only talk about the NFL draft. I would have kids who were all about social justice. I'd have kids who were all about, you know, general science. And they were all in the same classroom doing the same work, meeting their interest level, and then writing and researching, asking questions, talking to professionals, talking to teachers, talking to peers about that. So the lights were on. And what I would say to my freshmen when they entered my classroom for the first time is uh, perhaps a metaphor. It was a metaphor that I, that I led with. I said, you are coming into a classroom that the closest analog is your English classroom. But in your English classroom, you can sit on your butt in a chair with your shoulders back, 
and your feet pushed forward and you can wait for someone to pour stuff into your head and then give it back to one person, your teacher on request. But if you're in the journalism classroom, you are going to be leaning forward. You're gonna be on the balls of your feet. The initiative rests with you. The ball is in your hands to move it. And you're going to have to make that shift and it won't happen immediately. And usually for the first two or three months, you know, uh, be careful what, what you wish for because you just might get it. Kids always say they want agency and they want more power to choose. And when you hand that over back over, when you say you're right, here it is to a 14 year old, suddenly it becomes, oh my gosh, uh, this is much more difficult than I thought it would be. This is scarier than I thought it would be. I'm the one framing the questions. I'm the one coming up with the ideas. I'm the one talking to the people and just entering into those soft skills that, that come with talking, interviewing, asking questions, having a kind yet skeptical mindset. You know, That's all new stuff. You're reminding me of a memory. So um, I remember, um, and so the program at Palo Alto High School, which I, I want us to talk a little bit about, um, mm -hmm. I was basically the topic of my dissertation and then a, a, a later uh, book that I did through Columbia University uh, called Newsworthy. And um, I can recall that uh, you had a group of students there who had written an article uh, questioning uh, something about the Common App. So the Common App is something that that uh, students use to apply to college. And I think the issue was that, let's say it said you can put in, you know, 500 words into this text box, but it only took 300 or something like that. And so they basically wrote this article. And I think it was maybe even the CEO, you know, uh, fired back and said, take that down or whatever. And they said, please explain to us what piece of our article is inaccurate. And there was no response. And, you know, first of all, the, you know, this is a potential consequences of of uh you know retribution because this is the this is the way in which you apply for a college right uh but that level of of agency and that level of uh you know just speaking truth to power um i just think was just fantastic to watch yeah. well you know uh, i think that that was one of i believe paul candell's students yeah. i i actually think that young man was in my ap lit class <laughs> and as I recall, he was much more passionate about journalism than AP Lit, as many of my own students were. <laughs> right. um, and I, I, I can see their point. Um, and that is what he did. He, it, was a, it was a challenge. It was a challenge to why is it this way? It was asking the question with a sense of, 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 of good research, but also a sense of, I guess I would say, a little bit of audacity, one might say, but also a sense of fearlessness and also willingness to bring the questions forward that actually matter. I'm so concerned currently that, um, gosh, you know, Ed, we could go, we could go on a soup to nuts trip right now. <laughs> I know. About, um, you know, it's interesting to me that everybody's like, you know, these kids, they're going to have to solve the the climate crisis. They're going to have to solve Ukraine. They're going to have to solve, you know, uh, Social Security running out of money when they get there. And one would think that that statement of you're going to have to be the problem solvers and we haven't been able to solve it the way we're, we've been doing it, you would think that everyone would want to liberate the minds of these kids and say, come at us out of the box, give us any question you have, because we want to, we want to see that trained limber mind coming alive at 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. We don't want passivity. We don't want the same old answer to the same old question. We have new big problems and we need new big solutions and mindsets. 
And what I'm seeing right now is, and maybe it's the reactivity of the people in our age group. What I'm seeing right now is instead of saying, give us your best and we're, you're going to make us uncomfortable and we'll have to be, we'll have to sit with that discomfort. Instead, what I see is a nearly whole scale uh, intention to squash dissent and to squash questions and to squash anything that might make discomfort in another. And my thing is, you know, I'm watching kids in well-trained journalism pro programs, whether it's Paul Kandals and, and the current colleagues at Palo Alto High School or my own program at Harker, where I have two really thriving new young colleagues who are energetic and passionate, neither of whom were in journalism and who are both just both feet jumping right into it. Um, what I, when in our best journalism programs, we're teaching civil discourse. We're teaching, we're teaching a way to ask questions that isn't a personal attack when it's being done correctly. We are teaching kids to not look at a, a, a person you don't like, but look at the system attached and see what questions you can ask and what solutions you can pitch. So to squash um, these, these young minds who have so much ahead of them and they know it, and that's why we have the wellness crisis happening right now with our youth. Um, it seems to me to be going the wrong way for what we want the future to look like for these children globally, and certainly in the United States. Well, this reminds me yet of another um, thing you said to me many years ago. So um, people may or may not be aware of two Supreme Court uh, decisions that have a lot to do with the First Amendment. Um, the first uh, was the Tinker uh, case where a young woman in the 60s comes to school with wearing a black armband. Uh, Three of them, actually, yeah. Yeah, pr protesting the, you know, the Vietnam War, and she's basically, I think, sent home or suspended, and, um, and that case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and she prevailed. Um, I think that there was a lot of fear and anxiety around that decision, which led to another one several years later called Hazelwood, uh, which basically allows censorship um, in in many states, and there there I think we now have about 17 states, West Virginia being the most recent, uh, where there's anti Hazelwood legislation that uh, really protects student speech. But the thing you said to me many years ago is that a student can be in a civics class, learning the basics of the First Amendment, and then go down the hall to their journalism class and be told that they no longer have. The right to free speech, and uh, I'm not sure most people are aware of this, but it's um, it's uh, it's the it's the law of the land. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's funny that you say that. It is very true. And at the time I was talking to you, I was probably I, I won't say which school it was at because I don't want to I, I don't want to yeah. uh, bring any colleagues' name into this. But uh, there was a social studies teacher who was unhappy about very unhappy. Uh, the department was very unhappy about a piece that one of my very best students had written. And in fact, when the, the student had this opinion piece, which, which had to do with, um, which had to do with the diversity or lack of diversity in certain social studies texts, um, when that student came in and said, I, I really wanna do an opinion piece on this and a very high profile student at our school as well, I said, I'm really terrified that, there, that you could get some blowback to this and, uh, and I know that you're out there as a in advocacy, and, and you're, I'm not disagreeing with your point. I think you've got a very good point, but um, I need to make sure that you're not exaggerating. Someone else needs to be uh, checking your research, if you will. And I said, I want you to bring your your 
the textbook in question to school, you're going to give it to your fellow editor who was a math and science guy all the way down. And the guy who was not, he was not trying to upend the social narratives. Um, and I said, he's going to take that home and he's going to check every fact in your story. If you say there's eight pages that refer to what you're talking about, he needs to tag those. And until we check that, you're not going to publish it. And he checked it. He came back. He said to her, her, her facts are solid. And I, I checked all the pages. I checked everything she referred to. Um, I'm like, okay, then we'll, you are, you have my green light as your advisor. You are now protected by the facts to run this, but that doesn't mean that there won't be a reaction. And the reaction was swift and it was highly energized. And um, a colleague who I hold in high regard um, caught me after a meeting and was very, very angry and said the department was angry and that they were looking at retributive actions against the student um, in their department because they were so offended. And uh, I literally said, you're going to meet me in a different way if you do that. Um, <laughs> because the last time I checked your curriculum, you were talking about the First Amendment. You are in California. Oops, sorry. Um, um, and this is, this is uh, to put the power of teachers on a student because they pointed out a structural, a structural uh, concern. Uh, and they've done it civilly and in writing doesn't doesn't feel like it's fighting fair or in the way that we in social studies would want to teach them about how to do this. If you want to write a letter to the editor, I will publish I will tell the kids to publish that tomorrow. Um, because this student published it openly and publicly. She didn't go onto Twitter or right. some, you know, Finster account. Right. And <clears throat> you know, let's, 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 let's play, let's, let's show how, how we do this. Right. And uh, I was pleased to see that, that, uh, you know, teachers are human too. I was glad to see that when people took a breath um, and talked about it, they did write a letter to the editor, which was published immediately. And, you know, to be, to be fair, my students were like, mama, 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 they wrote this letter. I'm like, yes, because they have free speech as well. The Tinker right. decision says, neither teachers nor students give up their rights at the schoolhouse gate. Right. So, you know, I would also point, you know, I think there's an equally concerning trend right now um, that if you say something and I don't like it, I'm going to come at you as the teacher, I'm gonna come at the teacher and shut down the teacher. I think we've got discourse problems with kids, but I also think that um, it's important to remember that intellectual liberty lives all the way through and we often wanna agree with what someone else says. Yeah. I want to speak a little bit more about um, uh, Palo Alto and Palo Alto mm -hmm. High. So, I, you know, I think um, my first presumption, and I think it was a presumption many people would have because they know it's one of the most affluent zip codes in America. It's across the street from Stanford. The high school is uh, Facebook's around one corner and Google's down the street. Um, they might consider that that the the results that are evident there in terms of just the students is 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 about affluence and and what I found that was really uh, certainly that's a factor but there's something else going on there and and I also want to just uh, acknowledge the fact that um, you and Esther and Paul uh, made a concerted effort to also. Uh, really bring diversity to the program. Um, you would take your summers 
So for people who aren't aware, across the freeway is East Palo Alto, where the demographics um, in terms of people of color is very different than it is on, on one side of the freeway. And those students over there had a high school called Ravenswood that was closed, I think, maybe even back in the late 70s because it was, quote unquote, underperforming. And so those kids get bused to Palo Alto High School and some of the other high schools around. And um, you all would take your summers um, and this is a, there's a whole nother piece of this because I think that it, it speaks to the fact that uh, when people don't see themselves represented you mm -hmm. know, in media, they start to think maybe it's not for them. So your efforts to recruit uh, into the program at Palo Alto High School were, were challenging. And so you set up the summer program in East Palo Alto where the kids were actually, um, in parts of it, sometimes they were going into a, a little, you know, unbeknownst to many, uh, publication called East Palo Alto Today, run by this woman. Uh, I can't remember her name at the moment, but they're, you know, just these computers that were, you know, 20 years old. And, but there was this sense of pride about news in our community that is not all about gun violence and everything else. And, you know, there's a question in here somewhere, but I just really want to paint a picture for, for the, the, the real powerful work that you and Esther and Paul we're doing there and it continues to go on in terms of having, uh, being uh, really earnestly committed to, to diversity in media, you know? Well, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I have an answer to the, I'm not sure what the question was part, but let me, if I can. <laughs> I do that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, to your earlier question, um, uh, there, there's a, you, you put it right. It doesn't matter what the lens is that we're looking through. I think the Oscars are the are the proving case in this. Um, Michelle Yao, it was so important that she got that Oscar after the career that she's had, and she wasn't the only Oscar, but I'm going to speak about her. Um, because if you don't see yourself on film, how how can you see how I think of American TV in the 70s? and the 60s. And I wonder how anybody except white suburban America saw themselves in mm. it, except for maybe the Bunker family and, and <laughs> all of that kind of broad, broad stroke um, stereotyping. But you know, it's really important if, if you want to have journalism that's representative, you need to have people coming from all over. But then it's also important to say, and I'm going to come back to the East Palo Alto story in just a second because there's a couple of things I want to add and it's going to be out of order. You know, I, I also think that there's um, a real um, pigeonholing effect. And I think there's, there's a word for this. I can't think of it right now. You know, if you, have, if you have a Muslim reporter on staff, they don't get to do the religion beat or all the Muslim stories, right? That's ridiculous. <laughs> you have a voice on your staff who can cover anything, right? But in your newsroom, you're going to have an awareness that wasn't there before. Um, if everybody in your newsroom, and, and this is an equally big problem for me, if everybody in your newsroom went to the same slate of 15 universities in America, and your hiring staff, your hiring decision makers, privilege that only and won't look at a regional institution or a state school of journalism because that's just not good enough for our newsroom, then you are already pre-selecting the mindset that will be in around the tables in your newsroom. And again, we're at that place where you've got to have voices that can speak to experiences 
um, we can go, the easiest way to go is I'm going to speak from my experience as a woman. If you don't have women in your newsroom, how the heck are you even going to know? How are, how are you going to be attuned in conversations in your newsroom to what it's like to be a woman as a reporter if you don't have someone talking to you about it? We can talk about people of color, the LGBTQ plus community. Um, we can go on and on and on, but, but the, the newsroom needs to be representative and then everybody needs to write all the stories. And, um, and I stand on that. At Pali, uh, one of the biggest problems uh, was that the kids that, there, there was a diverse population at Pali. We weren't, uh, we were still, um, we were still majority, majority in students, but the brown and black kids stayed away from journalism. And one of my colleagues, the thing that kind of led Paul Kandel, and, and I really want to give props to Paul, he really put this into motion and really, and really was the energizer bunny behind it. And I also want to give props to Christy Blackburn, who's at Gunn High School, and Michelle Balmeo, who landed at Monta Vista and now is in Oregon. Um, we had a colleague who we were, we were trying to get kids to be sort of shunted over to journalism, uh, kind of spotted when they were ninth and 10th graders to get into our programs. And the kids on campus said to the colleague, uh, when they kind of were walked over to the journalism, they said, I'm not going in there. It's snowing in there. It's so white. And, you know, when, when there's no group you can be in, schools or social places, if you can't be with, with your friends or there's nobody that seems like you in a classroom, why would you do it? So we decided to come at it a different way. It also was a credit problem. Journalism is always an elective ed. You know, it's always fighting with something else. So um, kids have to make really hard choices. They might love journalism, but they may also love French horn. And at some point they're forced to choose one over the other in our current um, school systems. So over the summer, that's what we did is we created a standalone journalism program um, and tried to give the kids uh, hands-on experience and then got them in the newsrooms. And then with the idea, at least at Pali, if you would take our summer program, you could step onto any of our staffs. Um, and that had some blowback within our own newsroom. Um, you know, kids are like, I, if they didn't have to take our class, how can they come in? So we were like, we'll take it. We'll take the hits, but this is the, yeah. this is what we're going to do. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you, Around up here, but I, but this is the this is kind of a, a big question. We'll see where this goes, and it has to do with where we are in terms of journalism um, in 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 our in our society right now. In terms of the, the, the you know the distrust, um, and when when I ever mention to people that I'm a journalism professor and that I also you know run a, a an educational nonprofit that um, focuses on journalism, I immediately well, for many years, it was always you know, the fake news question and, mm. and all of that. Um, but I'm curious, you know, um, I mean, we, we this whole era of alternative facts and 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 some of the, you know, the the um, the issues that we find ourselves in, in terms of um, just a, a breakdown of uh, trusted institutions, um, you know, somebody who's committed your life to journalism education and First Amendment and all these things, where, where do you think we go from here with all of this? It's a big question. <laughs> I'll take a cup of coffee, uh, drink a cup of coffee, and I'll talk to you in a month or so. Um, <laughs> so, well, you know, um, I, I am going to say this. Um, I'm committed to journalism, but not, you know, you heard my a little bit about my life, my life track here. 
I am a journalism teacher because I was a teacher. Um, and one of the things that became clear to me is I see where these, the children of the 2000s, the 2010s, the 2020s, I see what's ahead for them. And I see what they, what they're going to need in terms of the internal power, the internal thoughtfulness, the internal compassion um, that they're going to require in order to move through these years ahead of them. And obviously at the schools I was at, a lot of those kids will be leaders, not all. But um, I moved to journalism because I'm a teacher. And I was like, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's underwater basket weaving. If it's underwater basket weaving and it can provide a crucible for kids to go through these kinds of questions and to be in these safe spaces to ask them to find things that they are they care about or want to lift up or questions that they feel are, are necessary to be asked and there's too much fear around it. And they're like, I will lift up this question for others. I don't care where that is in the school. I wanna be there. And to me, journalism ticked every single box. Um, we worked a lot um, to make uh, Whitney, Whitney Huang, who's my successor at Harker, we've talked about this a lot. It's very important that outside the journalism newsroom, you're doing your work well and you're writing carefully and you're researching carefully and you're trying to come up with content that, that meets your community's needs. Inside the newsroom, you have the opportunity to craft culture and a different kind of culture than you would find in a traditional classroom usually, simply because of the way the work has to happen. So a lot of my time in my journalism classroom um, was spent in, especially in these last 10 years, was spent in trying to acknowledge where kids are with the screamingly high anxiety levels that are that are present because of first climate change and social social upheaval and then oh oh that's right the pandemic locked me in my room for three years <laughs> and to try and create a place where kids feel like they have a home where they have they can ask questions and not be shut down um, but to create a culture so um for me the I think I moved away from your question, but for me, journalism answered my internal why. Why do you teach? And it, in, it, it answered my question of why do you want these kids to have this kind of thinking? Um, so I just kept moving in that direction. For the people who mock journalism now or who naysay it, oh my gosh, you've heard me say this so many times. The power of no is so powerful. Silicon Valley was built on the power of yes. Um, and much of America's history has been built on the power of yes. I don't know why we have the Gulliver's Travels thing. Do you, do you remember that cartoon as a kid? Gulliver's Travels, you'll never make it, Gulliver, right? Do you remember yeah, that? Right. <laughs> and, and so often right now- I remember hearing... Rocky and Bowinkle more, so, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and Natasha, Natasha. And the... Right, right, yeah, right. So, um, but, you know, I really think that uh, it's so easy because we're in a period of great uncertainty and change. And in a, a country that has kind of prided itself on being the country of momentum and, and power and, hey, we're at the top of the sand, you know, we're at the top of the mountain now. And we, like other empires before us, um, 
are seeing our position shift and we're seeing, we're seeing the nature of work shift. We're seeing a lot of things shift and they're shifting quickly. I mean, most recently now we're looking at what does AI mean? What is, what is it going to be? What will it do? And I think it's, you know, it's very hard to just kind of flex with everything. It's a lot easier to say, I liked it better the way it used to be. And when it comes to journalism, you know, you had a lot of, I, I find it interesting. Um, how do I want to say this? When I was teaching kids in journalism in the early 2000s, and I had some very promising students who became journalism people, um, they quickly found that their, their best access to be, to, to continue having a voice was not to follow a traditional newsroom. Um, and just speaking from gender, if you look at the high school journalism newsroom today, it is overwhelmingly female. It's a female majority classroom in every school I've seen. More girls than boys. Even Viking by the third year was at a gender, gender parity, more than it was 50-50 or better male to female ratios. And that was a sports publication. So we see that in high school. And then we see in college, um, I don't know what your demographics are in your Oregon classes. Same thing, mostly women. Mostly women, but it starts to diminish. Yes. And then when we start going into the traditional newsroom, women start moving out. Yes. And I have asked my female students why they moved on. They're like, are you kidding me? You know, I'm out of there. They have found success in going with the, the startup journalistic endeavors. They, they found success in going to the to pieces of social media and going there. They were able to flourish and succeed at a very high rate. So I'm going to also say that, you know, traditional journalism has, has not been benign, you know? I, I have a relative who was in journalism for a long time. And when I was in my 20s, I remember, and she, uh, she, she loved journalism. I couldn't believe it when she told me that, you know, she was asked to change a story so as not to offend an advertiser. Right. And so, I mean, yeah. what I think is we've got to have journalism, but we've also got to have civil discourse. I think the nature of journalism will change. Um, I think that, that we're, my belief is that we're going to see a really interesting thing occur. I watched it with my students. None of my students at my last two schools are probably going to be journalism people. They're going to major in computer science. They're going to major in medicine. They're going to major in whatever, but they were crackerjack journalists in high school. I would challenge any journalist up against my kids who were not going to go into journalism. They were just doing the great work. Right. So the kids who are going to go into journalism, um, I think we'll see a couple of things change. I've said to my students, why are we have forgotten to invite you? I would like to invite you. Please consider for a few years of your life, I would invite you to consider giving back through teaching in some way, not for your whole career, but a few years. I would invite you to consider in some way being a voice in your community. You're trained, you know how to do it. I know that you're going to be wise in the way you handle your democratic duties as a citizen. But consider it. You know, one of my favorite students is now um, is now an executive at a major news organization and lives in New York. When she was finishing college and looking for jobs, had her own professors and and people in the business were like, "Why are you going into journalism? Don't you know it's dying?" And this was in like <laughs> 2007. Right. And what she said to me, and I'm paraphrasing, and I'm sure if she ever hears it, she'll be like, "That's not quite what I said," because she's a fact checker. Um, <laughs> She said something along the lines of, 
why are people saying this to me? When you run into the burning barn, you know the barn's on fire. If you're running into the barn, you have a reason to do it. Yeah. And I don't think it's doing any service when we dismiss people who go into education. We're not doing any service when we dismiss people who are saying, I'd like to be a journalist or I'd like to be a storyteller. But I think the Renaissance will be community journalism is going to come back. Yeah. Well, Anne Curry says that journalism is a calling. Uh, yes. So because they're passionate. I want to thank you, Ellen Austin. This has been such a delight. Um, and uh, for those who are looking to um, maybe reach out to you or some of the consulting work and things that you're doing, um, we'll put your contact information in the show notes, if you so desire. Um, I just want to thank you and uh, you're collaborating with us at JLI on doing some things. Uh, so we're pretty excited to be working with you and um, thank you for your service and your commitment to students and and to uh, the First Amendment and free speech and, and you know, just uh, all of that. So thank you. Well, thank you, Ed. And I just want to take a second because I think you're the guy who who hides behind the humble hat too often. <laughs> I think that um, you have done such incredible work to keep the lights on in journalism at the collegiate level and at the high school level. And um, I, I think that you do so much to lift up those who are trying to do the work of the creator of the students and those who are the teachers who are trying to be there in the room with those students doing that great work. I think, um, I think we all owe you a great debt and a great thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm humbled. Thank you. All right, Ellen, take care. Thanks a lot. How to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.